Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Franchising and You, a production of Franchise Foundry. My name is Paul Segretta and I'm your host, Saturday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, 8.30 a.m. Central. If you're interested in learning more about owning your own business and considering franchising as the path to business ownership, then this podcast is right for you. If your interest is in expanding your business and franchise portfolio, then you're in the right place. And if you're a current business owner exploring whether to franchise your business and franchising and you is right for you as well. Now we had some interesting uh, news, actually some great information uh, this morning about franchising as reported um, on CNBC. Um, the, the news says basically, you know, fueled by tax reform, deregulation, and upbeat economy, the franchise industry is set for another year of strong momentum. The International Franchise Association is out with its 2018 Franchise Business Outlook, showing franchise industry expansion is set to grow for the eighth year in a row. That is absolutely tremendous news, especially for our listenership that is looking at franchising as the next step in their career. I'd like to thank last week's guest, franchise attorney Tom Spadia. It certainly was an interesting show, as Tom pointed out, a number of things individuals should be aware of when reviewing the franchise disclosure document and, of course, also in evaluating the franchise opportunity from several key common sense points. Listen on demand at blogtalkradio.com slash franchising and you. Franchising and you is sponsored by Retail Solutions. Real estate professionals at Retail Solutions help franchisees locate, negotiate for, and lease or purchase the retail space, building sites, or built to suits best suitable for their new business ventures. Their goal is to have long-lasting relationships with their clients in their marathons, not sprints. They take pride in fulfilling their clients' expansion needs and strategies. Retail Solutions clients know that they will be with them for the long haul. With Retail Solutions representing national and regional retail and franchise clients, wherever their business growth leads them. Retail Solutions is a member in several national professional organizations, including the International Franchise Association and the International Council of Shopping Centers. You can find Retail Solutions on the web at retailsolutionsre.com. And speaking of Retail Solutions, our guest today is Sherry Sanchez, a principal of Retail Solutions. Sherry serves as Director of National Tenant Services Division, with more than 20 years of experience in real estate with a particular specialty of tenant and landlord representation. Sherry is known for her strong leadership, creativity, and problem-solving and negotiations, and, of course, her tenacity. Sherry, thanks for being a guest this morning on Franchising and You. Thank you for having me, Paul. So um, you have, I mean, from what I've seen and what I've heard and talking with uh, other people at um, Retail Solutions, including David Simmons, you have an expansive career in commercial real estate. And, of course, we know commercial real estate is much different than residential real estate, albeit, you know, there are some commonalities. But commercial real estate, at least for our audience that may be exploring business ownership, is an integral component of the business success factor initially and ongoing. So please share why it's essential to have a professional such as yourself working on a candidate's behalf when selecting a location. And if they were your client, what could they expect from you? Wow, that's a, that's a really great question. 
um, one of the, the passions um, that I have is to see small businesses grow personally. Um, to me, there's nothing a little, nothing more rewarding than watching a first-generation uh, family start a business and build something that they can pass on to their children's children. And to, the first piece of the foundation is obviously making sure that the location for the business, if it's going to be retail or restaurant-oriented, it's going to be suited to give it the most um, passive advertising available, meaning that it's in a good area where it can be highly visible. It's going to be in a route and path of traffic that's dra- driving and traveling in that direction. And that it's going to have all of the um, building blocks of what makes a business successful. Um, that can be some people look at demographics. They're going to look at, well, do we have enough people making the right income bracket in this area? Sometimes we're going to look at basically the, the psychological impact of how people shop and spend money. Uh, there's a lot of studies and research done now that help us track how consumers make decisions and how they decide, um, you know, how frequent they're going to go to a place, um, you know, whether, the, whether it's a, a restaurant operation or a retail operation, um, the co-tenancy and synergy of that makes sense. Um, the parking availability and, and convenience of the location has to make sense. Um, there's just so many factors, and it's so much more of a science and an art than just a gut feeling. And for years and years, what I heard early on in this business was the gut feeling that, you know, brokers just have a gut for the spot or hearing from business owners that the reason we made the decision to go there was we just had a good feeling about it. Well, when you break down into what those feelings all kind of uh, gravitated toward, uh, there really was a science behind it, and they just couldn't quantify it. And we're getting better at quantifying that data now to really understand behaviors and spending, behaviors and loyalty, um, and that is making a huge impact on the success of a business. So knowing that upside and making a choice on a location is huge. Um, I'll tell you that it's, it's a very, very um, expensive and uh, not a quick learning process um, to go through. So we really spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in data for our clients to make sure that there is good data out there, the methodology of understanding how the data was gathered and then how it was forecasted into the future um, is really going to be telling the story of a long-term successful business. Yeah, you know, many have heard over the years, you know, about doing a demographic study. It seems like every franchisee that we have coming on board, when they start looking at location, they say, I want to know the demographics. And, of course, I remember back in the old days, um, basically it would be one, three, five-mile, you know, radius. They were, they were counting rooftops, you know, homes, and, and then there was just some demographic information. And it's certainly not like it is today. Uh, as technology has helped take this to uh, a new level. Uh, you mentioned something about, you know, buying, you know, trends. I know uh, working with uh, retail solutions, um, tremendously uh, professional in the, the market analysis reports uh, that I've seen and with one particular brand that we work with together, uh, Sub-Zero Ice Cream, I've seen these market analysis reports you know, talk about or, or refer to uh, households that buy ice cream uh, out of the home or buy, take ice cream into the home. 
and the market analysis of, of the competition. Can you elaborate on some of this? Because I don't think our listening audience really can understand the breadth of what some of those reports really entail. Yeah, um, we, we have what's come there's there's a long way still for technology to go. I never thought in a million years we would be at the stage that we are today, just looking back 10 years ago. Everybody knew there was potential there um, for, to really start to understand the science of these behaviors and track data better as technology improved. But I don't think anybody really anticipated that it would be this effective this quickly. Um, some of the things that, that are being done now um, are tracked through cell phone data. This is the newest side of the equation, and it still has a whole lot of work to go on the methodology. There are several groups out there that do that. But um, it, what, it, what they'll do is they'll take a look at, okay, we know that, that this type of consumer in this age bracket is usually shopping frequently in this area at this time of day. They now can get to that level. Um, so, yes, Big Brother is watching. That doesn't mean the government's watching. That just means that the <laughs> cell phone providers that you're using are being very, very smart about tracking uh, where you're going because of navigation to make sure that emergency officials can find you. Um, and all of these things are great benefit for life safety, but they also turn into a great benefit for understanding your behaviors of how you shop and spend your day. That makes it easier for retailers, restaurants, and other businesses like service providers for medical or other um, types of goods that you may need, hair color, um, barber shops, things like that too, to determine, okay, what time of day are you interested in my product? And, and how frequently are you in this area? And just because there's 500,000 people in a city, what if there's only 5,000 that actually like my product and are my customer? So we're not lo no longer looking at quantity, we're looking at quality. And I think that you know, that's the it, huge it, important it, differentiation. It, it, it definitely is. I mean, even something as simple as being on the right side of the street and I saw a young brand make that mistake and put their breakfast shop on the side of the street that had heavy traffic coming home from work. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and trying um, to cross the street <laughs> in the morning or right, in the afternoon exactly. to get there. Yeah, exactly. it's just and then of course, too, we are simple things like having enough, you know, parking spaces. Um, you know, I see that a lot of times. You know, when there's a restaurant in the shopping center. And then you have a, uh, a a dry cleaner in there as well, and sometimes that parking lot can get quite uh, crowded. So you know we have people that are looking at uh, buying a business. So they they buy a business. If it's a franchise, they buy a franchise. They go through their training. Uh, now it comes time they want to look for a location, and so they hook up with with you, and and retail solutions. What can they expect? What, what is the process at that point? Because you know they're anxious to, you know, finally mm -hmm. put their hand on something tangible, and the first part is the real estate. What can they expect from you? Right. So the first thing they're going to expect from us, and this is uh, probably contrary to what business owners want to hear, is that we're going to slow down a bit. We're going to make sure that we understand what it is your business is going to do. That's the best way for us to help you. We need to understand everything about it. If it's an existing business model, and the, a franchise, for example, we want to understand where the most successful franchise 
um, units are it, throughout the brand, um, who their customers are, and why um, are they growing and expanding in some areas well and not in others. So we're actually going to take on um, gathering data, lots and lots of data. It takes a few weeks to do this. Um, sometimes it's easily accessible and available in a POS system. Sometimes it's tracked by a company credit, um, the, the credit card providers that you use to scan with your POS. Sometimes it's a lo uh, loyalty program that you've incorporated to be able to track who your customers and clients are coming and going. And we're going to take that data and we're going to identify based on that many, many different things and put together that first. So as bad as you want to go hop in a car, <laughs> our first reaction is, okay, let's make sure we understand all of these things first. If you're too new as a brand and you don't have that data yet, then we're going to look at some model um, competitors or types of targets that you have identified that you want to attract and build a model that way. So the data is, is actually the very first step. It's the best way to create a foundation. We're going to educate you through this. We're going to teach you what all this stuff means. Um, we're going to make sure that you understand that just because a place it could be successful today doesn't mean it's going to be successful five years from now. Um, great example is what's happening right now with the millennials taking over um, in, in the highest population level now for the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that millennial group now has very different behaviors than what we had with baby boomers who used to dominate the market, and that's who marketing dollars used to be geared toward. So if the market is aging and trending in a different direction and millennials are not going into that market, then you're going to see a difference and shift over the next five years that could be devastating to your business. So we want to trend that data forward. We want to track it. Um, and there's lots of ways we, we do that. And then we're, the other thing we're going to do is we're going to teach you a lot of the terminology you're going to be hearing for the first time, what the business points need to be worked out in a lease before um, you ever even get started on a negotiation for one. And then we're going to teach you how to look for property. We're actually going to identify sites that um, are, meet all of the criteria that we've um, identified that we need are, are in the specific trade areas based off of the demographics of where you need to be. And then we're going to drill in and start combing through those locations. And where there's not locations, we're going to be cold calling on the owners because we've identified where you have to be. If we go out of that that uh, area by a block or two, it can be the, the difference of being in another country. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Those boundaries absolutely. are crucial. And yeah, the you know, it's, tends it's to kick in quickly. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, trends earlier. And um, I remember uh, not too long ago, um, we had just taken on uh, development for a brand and they were talking about um, one of their locations that just wasn't doing very well. And when I asked them about it, um, you know, what, what did you do in your site selection process? And they were saying, well, we look for neighborhoods uh, within a certain area that have 100,000 population. And when I looked at it, I said, well, yeah, it has 120,000 population. Yeah, we thought it would be good, they said. And um, when I looked historically, well, that 120 was down from 142 years prior and down from 183 years prior to that. So it had been trending in the opposite direction. So sometimes you do have to take um, that deeper dive. And, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, how much data plays into this. And, of course, you talk about 
you know, terminology. So let's talk a little bit about terminology because the average individual um, on our show, you know, they, they run the spectrum from novice to, you know, experts. So we're going to take nothing for granted. There's more to this than the lease. Um, we know, of course, uh, doing this every day, you know, there's a bunch of acronyms like LOI. Explain that portion mm-hmm. of securing a lease. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is brilliant, somebody smarter than me years ago came up with, is before you start wasting money on attorney's fees, trying to hammer out the business points by the hour with an attorney, <laughs> is they came up with this mm-hmm. great little non-bonding tool called it LOI, which stands for Letter of Intent. All that uh, document is designed to do is to help a landlord and a tenant or a buyer and a seller predetermine the business points that are going to be most important to them before they enter into the legal lease side of a lease negotiation or a purchase agreement and start spending attorney's fees. That way the attorneys are not negotiating the business points. They're negotiating on the fairness and the legal side of your protection. So it makes their job very clear, and it makes it very easy for a a prospective tenant or um, buyer to understand what their obligations would be if they entered into a lease without the risk of having to pay a lot of fees out of pocket up front. And some of the terminology that is reviewed in a letter of intent and the business points have to do with, um, let's start with a lease, for example. Um, Some of the typical things that are in a letter of intent are going to include base rents. Those are pretty important to know what they are. The base Mm -hmm. rent basically is is the amount of rent you pay to be able to use the facility. Um, It's basically going to be just the base point starting point of what your total rent will be. And on top of that base rent, oftentimes landlords have this thing that really confuses people called triple nets. And all mm-hmm. triple nets are, are the, the total property uh, cost to maintain it with common area maintenance, property taxes, and property insurance. All tenants pay their fair share of that. And it's prorated based on the size of the space that they have versus the size of the overall project. That's how you know it's fair when you go into it. And that amount is going to be uh, reconciled. That triple net portion is not supposed to be an income maker for a landlord. If you're a good tenant broker, you know this. Um, Some institutional landlords try to make it a profit center, and they will build in um, escalation into that triple net amount that just keep increasing year over year because of inflation. Well, that's not what it's intended for. It's intended to be a, a, a managed, reasonable, controlled item on the table as much as it can be. Taxes are hard to control because government's in control of that. Insurance can be hard to control because of just natural disasters and the way that things impact property insurance are usually beyond the control of a property owner. But on the common area maintenance side, it's definitely something that a property owner can do to control how much they pay for landscaping, how often they wash the windows, how much they pay the day porter to pick up the trash around the property, how much they they hire if, if it's a area that's deregulated for electricity, how much are they spending on electrical lighting for the project, um, and things like that. So so those costs are not supposed to be a profit center for the owner. And typically we want to cap anything that's controllable within those costs so that year over year they don't continue to go up um, at a level that's going to put your rent 
out of something that's reasonable for you to be able to pay. So when we're looking at a base rent and a triple net, we put those two together for a total rent or a gross rent, sometimes it's called. And those things are basically, if you're in the restaurant business, we want them to be no more than 10% of your gross projected sales. Um, In a retail situation, sometimes they can be higher than that, just depending on the type of business that you do. Um, and because you're, you're typically your, your employee base and your overhead for retail space is not as high as it is in a restaurant. Um, sure. and, we, and that's, that's kind Sherry, of, before we, before we go on, let me, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. let's take a, a just a, a quick break. Franchising and you is also brought to you by Fran fund, Fran fund partners with franchisees to get the financing they need to get the doors to their business open quicker and easier by crafting personalized forward thinking funding strategies that helps solidify the dreams of franchise ownership. Fund positions franchisees for long-term success. And with its own in-house lending team who takes care of the underwriting, Fund is able to accelerate the funding process so clients can move forward even faster. To learn about the personalized options that are available to you, visit FranFund.com to get your free funding um, toolkit. You know, Sherry, the triple net uh, obviously can be a significant um, amount. So, you know, a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know, people hear that, you know, the lease and say, oh, I got a, you know, a, a great rate on my, you know, square footage. And, uh, and it turns out their triple net is just um, astronomical. And uh, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. anyway, something that certainly be care, uh, careful of. But another term, you know, many don't understand or even aware it exists is another thing that's um, negotiated at the beginning in the LOI, which is tenant improvement allowance. You know, explain that, you know, what that is, how it can really be a new business owner's friend, and and then, of course, uh, share a little bit of insight into uh, first and second generation space, which often um, has a lot to do with tenant improvement allowance. Sure. So, so tenant improvement allowance is designed to basically act as a um, as a bridge between the the loan debt or the financing that a, a tenant may have to build their space out, and the amount they actually need to get it open. So, landlords oftentimes see a lot of value in a restaurant space being built out, as an example, um, because restaurant spaces generally are in high demand. um, there's always a new concept wanting to replace them. And so they're willing to kick in more dollars towards that type of use because they know the build-out cost, the construction cost, is going to be much more significant um, than just a traditional retail space. Um, When you add in the electrical, the hooding, the vents, the grease traps, the extra plumbing, et cetera, those dollars add up. So landlords, Typically, the, the more of a tenant improvement allowance they're willing to give you um, means that you're going to be paying very close to or, or right at fair market values in most instances to get a strong tenant improvement allowance out of them. You're going to typically be agreeing to a longer period of time of term. Um, most businesses know after the first three years whether they're going to be successful or not. Well, it takes landlords two to three years to make their money back on the tenant improvement dollars that they give to you, plus the lease commissions that they give to you and any other free rent abatements, things like that. So they're going to ask you to sign a longer-term lease so that they have a longer time to make money on your space. And so 
usually a, a, a really strong TI dollar is going to mean that you're going to be in a 10-year minimum lease term. Something that is, is fair for the market and average for the market could be a five-year lease term. It's, it's harder to get tenant improvement dollars out of the landlord for anything less than a five-year term. Um, sometimes landlords will do free rent in lieu of that. And the reasons that you don't want to get too heavy on the TI um, is because at some point the landlord has a break-even model that they have that they're willing to put towards construction. Now they're going to start asking you to amortize some of this back into your rent. Suddenly you're looking at your rent continuing to have a, it's going to now have a higher base to start with, and it's going to continue to increase as the years go on. And it's going to be very, very hard to bring that back down, and you're now going to be over market. So if you get into trouble in your business and you need to find a subtenant for it, now you're going to probably have to eat the difference between whatever fair market value is and the amount you agree to pay above that for your tenant improvement allowance. It's going to be harder to find that subtenant. Um, it's also going to be um, a little trickier for you over the long haul to start making money on it because you're probably eating into your 10% rent factor now. Um, people sure. get really excited about a location and all they see is the, the location and everything around it. And they think, oh, well, I, can, I must have to pay anything here because everybody else seems to be successful and busy. Um, and if I go over my 10% rent factor, it should be great and fine. Well, um, it's, 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 a, it's a risk. It's a gamble to do that. Um, and it's one of the, the biggest cautionary types of things that you have to consider. Second generation space is definitely the way to go if you can find it. Second generation space means that somebody's already put in bathrooms. They've put in an air conditioner. Um, it may be a little bit older, but it's still open. It's still operating and uh, can probably get you through at least three to five years. Um, it's already going to have doors and windows and everything else you could think inside, demising walls, uh, lights. And that saves you a lot of money construction where maybe you have to just change some of the lipstick <laughs> inside the space, right. the paint color or the flooring, to brand it. Um, and make it look like whatever your business is. So there's a huge cost savings in not having to come up with all those construction dollars up front by finding second-generation space. Usually the rents are not going to be pushed to the maximum because the landlord's not having to cough over a bunch of tenant improvement dollars. Um, and typically, just because it's a second-generation restaurant space that went under, some, some people are, think that if it's gone under once or twice, it must be the location. I'll, I personally, I believe 60% of sales restaurants are not location. It's actually bad operations. Um, sure, so, I agree. Uh, so it's, it's something that you have to really evaluate and say, okay, let's, let's make sure the demographics and all of the other analytics make sense. And if they do, then we know it's probably an operation issue. And if they don't, yeah. then, yeah, somebody just re really missed the ball on the analytics and demographics and should never have made better restaurants. I love how you, um, you know, talk about basically um, um, kind of underlying tone with the exit strategy, thinking about if it doesn't work and you have to sublease this, you have to make sure that, you know, it's, uh, it's within the, the range of the market so that you're able to sublet that. I, I think that's a very strong point. You know, a lot of people don't realize the big difference between the first and generation space. Uh, we work with a, with a particular brand that could have an investment level, initial investment level, anywhere from a half a million to a million dollars. Um, and I've seen half a million dollars invested uh, on a second generation space, and I've seen a million dollars <laughs> invested on a first generation space. And albeit 
they did get a tenant improvement allowance uh, back in the form of a, of a check for $200,000. But still, there's a $300,000 difference between um, that, that first-generation space and that second-generation space in this particular case. And, you know, for mm-hmm. the people listening in, you know, sometimes you think, well, I want brand new. Well, there's, there's a cost that comes with it. Um, also, some gen- second-generation space, and, of course, some of this has to do with, you know, uh, permits and, and zoning and different things in the municipality, uh, especially with, with restaurants that, that might require, you know, grease traps and hoods and, and, and everything else under the sun. Typically in second-generation space, too, you're going to get up and running a lot quicker. Uh, especially if it was a restaurant, you're opening a restaurant, uh, and and the bathrooms don't have to be moved, and the heating and air is in place, and and everything is just um, matter like you said, you know, changing the lipstick song to to make it look different. So you know these are these are different things that you know commercial realtors, uh, tenant representation agents will find for you when you're looking for your property and show you the gamut, show you everything from second to uh, first generation space. You know, you, you brought up a good point early on. Um, and I don't think um, a lot of people that are looking for space as new business owners realize this. You mentioned about cold calling, you know, some um, property owners, because often that space might not be available now. They're not ready to list it, but they know that in 90 days it might be available or some other circumstances like that. Plus, you know, I think uh, commercial realtors are worth their weight in gold based upon their network uh, as well. Can you, um, you know, talk a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we often see is a person, you know, <clears throat> uh, coming to us and saying, hey, I'm so frustrated. I, I, I went ahead and hired a, a commercial broker um, to help me with finding space and location. And all I'm seeing is the stuff that's on MLS. Well, in commercial real estate, there's not one MLS. Um, everything that is um, in residential is typically um, managed by a board of realtors. They all belong to it. They have the same lock boxes. It's really, really easy, clean, efficient. Not everything in the market is going to be in that MLS, but that's how they work. Commercial side of things, there's limitless <laughs> MLSs. Um, what you're seeing in the market, if you're Googling LoopNet, is one of the most common that people can search on themselves. It's, it's end-user friendly, um, and it will give you access, but it's dependent on being updated by brokers. And brokers are busy doing deals, not updating their own listings and databases. So it's often old information. It's bad information. Oftentimes, property's been long ago. Um, I've seen reports out there that brokers didn't even list the property and put it on some of these MLS services and commercial, the company just pulled them in off of searching their website. And so they pulled in old data and they never replaced it. So now they, there's this old data there. Um, so it's, it's not as simple because it's not all in one place. So those relationships in the local community are huge. We only work with local market brokers with our clients across the country. And I said countries because we do work Canada, U.S., and Mexico uh, with site selection. And I think that it's um, also really important if, you're, if you've identified the area that you want to be in that you're active, actively and proactively picking up the phone, sending out emails, writing to landlords and property owners um, when property is not listed to find out, hey, is there anybody in your center that's struggling 
that you just don't think mm-hmm. he's going to make it, that may want out, or, you know, we follow the news. We have, uh, we know when, when certain brands are struggling that are big, large, regional, and national brands, and we're going to proactively reach out to a property owner and say, hey, I noticed it. Sears is in your center, and we've heard that they're closing all of their locations. And is there any chance that you'd be willing to maybe take that, you know, 25,000, 50,000 square foot box and subdivide it? Because we have some clients that are looking for smaller square footage or might want to take the whole thing. That proactive approach actually helps us find properties. Uh, It takes time. It takes patience. But we're going to find the properties in the areas that you need to be in. Um, And sometimes that means you have to wait an extra two, three months to get in. Sometimes it means you have to wait a year to get into the right market. And that's where these strategies that we put together um, when we identify potential markets are so valuable because we're going to map out the whole market of where the brand can work, come up with several options and alternatives in a given trade area, and then drill in from there. So that if trade area A is just too tight and there's nothing happening right now, we can focus on trade area B because trade area B meets all the same criteria. It's still going to be just as important. It just may not be your very first choice. And first choice will come along later, maybe in two years. Now you're open and operating. You've got cash flow coming in and you can reinvest in opening another unit or relocating sure. if you need it to at the end of your lease yeah. term. Yeah. A lot of times too, when you, when you call up and I've seen, you know, franchisees, new franchisees come up and Oh, I just talked with somebody. There's going to be some space opening in their shopping center. That would be a great space. And then, of course, you talk to professionals like yourself that say, well, the reason it's going to be a great space is because two blocks away is where the uh, the anchor tenant is moving in a brand-new shopping center, and they don't yet have an mm-hmm. anchor tenant on this on this old one. So it, it really runs the gamut. Also, I, I want to emphasize, you know, when individuals are looking at franchise companies, uh, and looking at the opportunity, ask if there's already uh, an arrangement in place with a firm like Retail Solutions. Because as you were talking about earlier, some of that early stage uh, information that you gather about successful locations, about all that under the sun um, is usually typically done ahead of time if you already have a relationship with that brand. So that kind of fast-tracks some franchisees as well. And I think that is uh, absolutely. absolutely important. Yeah. So uh, very, That's very uh, important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a great example of that is, is what you and I are working right now in Orlando. Um, uh, yep. we've, we've identified multiple markets uh, and trade areas that will work for the Sub-Zero brand there. So we have a perfect plan set together. We have a franchisee right now that wants to do one unit in one area but we've already mapped out the whole market so that if either he expands or another franchisee comes to the table that wants to be there, that just shrunk down the timeline by four weeks between gathering oh, data, yeah, collecting it, and analyzing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about one other um, situation that we hear about a lot, and we hear about it a lot here in the Woodlands. And I actually know a family that invested heavily in a uh, in one of the more popular frozen yogurt franchises and uh, was in a high traffic foot traffic area and they actually failed even though they were one of one of the highest grossing locations actually it happened to them twice in two of the highest grossing locations in their chain 
And that, what I'm referring to, is an escalation cost in the lease based upon increase in sales. If you could, shortly as we're getting towards the end of the show, talk about some of those potential missteps or, or, or pitfalls that could occur when you think you're in this absolutely great location, but yet it's going to be hard to make money. Yeah, um, percentage rent is a good example of that. Um, we, if you've not heard that term before, if you're very successful in your business in shopping malls and really large power centers, um, for decades landlords really wanted tenants to pay percentage rent. If they're successful in their business, um, on top above above X, whatever X is, there's something called a natural break point, and they determine that, okay, if you're making more in sales than that, then you need to pay us another percentage of your sales in addition to your rent. And tenants agreed to it, and some tenants survived on that business model for a while. Some don't. Um, in some situations, that kind of model can make sense, and some, but in most situations it doesn't. Um, often landlords are asking people to pay those escalations on a monthly basis based on where sales are monthly. If you know anything about retail, it is seasonal. If you know anything about restaurants, it is seasonal. The catering volume mm-hmm. and stuff that you're going to do around the holidays is tenfold what you're going to do in February. So what, what we recommend to people is if you're ever in a situation where you just really, it's the only way you're going to get the landlord to agree to it, consider an artificial break point that is well above and beyond what you think you would need to be able to make a profit and pull money in sure. before you start paying extra money out. Um, yeah, that's go in with your eyes eyes wide open for sure. Yeah, eyes wide open for and, sure. And I, so I, I think I Definitely. think the key there is to make sure that if you think your business is going to do eight hundred thousand dollars in sales and you can make money at that, you don't want to start paying a landlord percentage rent until you get probably at least ten to twenty percent above that. So that's where you want your break point. To right. Be. So think of it in terms yeah, that's of that. Exactly how to push that up people. if you have to get in that yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, my personal uh, like 20% or more. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So we're we're getting ready to close out the show. I wanted to take another moment to recognize another one of our sponsors. Franchising and You is also sponsored by Spadio Anana, a national boutique franchise law firm representing franchisees and franchisors. Um, the franchise attorneys at Spadio Anana are sharp, experienced attorneys understand business and the goals and aspirations of their clients. New franchisees really need to understand the contracts and commitments they're making when joining a brand, including but not limited to the FDD, their entity, uh, and of course, as we're talking today about their retail lease. Uh, the great folks at this law firm will help walk franchisees through every step of the process. The firm helps franchisors navigate the myriad of federal and state regulations, keeping them on track to grow and support their franchisees. Speed, service, and diligent are the foundational traits you will find in every one of the attorneys at Spadio Ignata. Learn more about this firm at www.spadialaw.com. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors, uh, Spadio Ignata Retail Solutions uh, and Friend Fund. We certainly uh, appreciate your confidence as we're trying to grow this great thing, franchising. Uh, and you, Sherry, uh, do you have any parting words for individuals that are in the process or getting ready to be in the process of selecting a location for their business? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I can tell you is to um, engage with somebody 
who has a teacher's heart that's going to explain to you what's going on and truly be a partner um, mentality to work with throughout your process. Um, if you don't have somebody that understands your business and is fighting for your business, um, they're probably not fighting to protect your business. So that's the thing to think through, not just about how to get numbers of transactions and volumes churned. Um, these things, as we say in our company, are marathons. They're not sprints. Um, mm-hmm. Getting, Making sure that you're really thinking this through and you're properly prepared is everything. And we would love to help you and talk you through any questions that you have and get you on the right track. Sounds great. Well, uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. It's great insight, great perspective. Um, Thanks for sharing your experience. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I really enjoyed it. I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. Well, as we wind down another edition of Franchising and You, I'm pleased to announce that we did receive a few questions from our audience this past week, one from a listener in New York who wrote, there are so many websites that list franchises uh, for sale and different opportunities. They all seem to provide similar info. I'm at an early stage of gathering this info, but I really don't have time to waste which sites are best. So first, I want to thank you for that question. Uh, First off, these sites are referred to as franchise portals. They can be very valuable in your search, but yes, there are many, many of them, and you can lose track of time very easily. I'd suggest spending time on the sites that come up on the first page of search results when you type in franchise opportunities. One in particular that I personally like is Franchise Gator. It's listed on the first page of Franchise Opportunities Search. Uh, I really like their site as the layout is easy to navigate, and to me, most important is being able to get back to where I was on the site if I were to click on a link. Uh, They also do a great job of providing relevant content in their blog section. I'm very big about educating candidates. Uh, And candidates will find this part of the site very valuable as they really do a great job of updating their uh, their blog quite frequently. And they also have a Q&A section. Um, So really a good site. That's FranchiseGator.com. There's a few others out there too. Again, type in Franchise Opportunities and your search results will pop up. Thanks for your question and all to who submitted questions this past week. Keep them coming by writing to me at Paul at FranchiseFoundry.com. My goal is to answer as many questions as possible on the air, of course, as time permits. In any event, you can be assured we'll get you the answers or information you're looking for, whether it be ourselves or any one of our great guests, and as quickly as possible. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for including Franchising in You as you explore the wonderful world of franchising and business ownership. As we say, dream it, wish it, do it. We're excited to be part of your quest towards franchise success. Have a great day and weekend ahead.